Titus 2, 11, 14, this is actually one, in the Greek, this is one sentence. And it's broken down into verses, of course, as they translate it into, uh, out of the Greek. Uh, we've been looking at and, and are looking at, we'll be looking at here for uh, several weeks, grace. Grace is God's act of favor of bestowing the greatest gift on those who deserve the greatest punishment. Uh, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. This is unmerited favor, this is undeserved favor, this is a free gift. So grace is God's act of favor of bestowing the greatest gift on those who deserve the greatest punishment. Last week we looked at verse 11. God's grace brings us redemption. God's grace, William Mounts says, is one, a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ given freely to sinners who believe. I have here two magnets. It looks like one from where you're at. These two magnets obviously are its actually a very strong magnet, and they are stuck together. When God sent his son... Christ to die on the cross for our sins, he not only paid for the penalty of sin, but he also broke the power of sin. When Christ died on the cross for our sins, he not only paid for the penalty of our sin, but he broke the power of sin. Now we know as magnets there's still very much of a draw to bring them back together. Even though the power of sin has been broken, even though the power of sin has been broken, because of the power of sin and because of our old nature, there still is an attraction or attractiveness to sin itself. You follow me? This is what Paul is talking about in the verse 12 that we're going to get to. So I want to, I, I'm going to use this so you keep this, this picture in your mind. The power of sin has been broken. The draw of sin is still there to draw us back in. You will never not be tempted. Well, why would you be tempted? To draw you back into sin. The penalty's been paid for. That's, that's verse 11. But the power of sin is still drawing, is still attracting. So what Paul's going to take us here in verse 12, he's, he's going to tell us, listen, you need to get a, as far apart, away from sin as possible. God's grace has, brings us redemption. This, is God, this grace is God's one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ, freely, or given freely to sinners who believe. It's sufficient for all. It's efficient for those who believe. For God so loved the world. Grace, if you're here this morning, and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, this grace is for you. It's for, for sufficient for all mankind. But it only becomes efficient, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him has everlasting life. 
It's sufficient for all. It's only efficient, efficacious, effective for those who believe. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ your personal Savior, this grace is for you. But it only becomes effective when you personally put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Which brings us then to verse 12. God's grace brings us reformation. God's grace brings us change. The power of sin has been broken. The, the, the penalty of sin has been paid for. The power of sin has been broken. When that's been broken, change takes place. And that's what Paul is going to relate to us here in verse 12. The change that takes place. First of all, let me say about salvation. Salvation is a change in our position before God. That's verse 11. Sometimes we explain it this way. I'm a sinner. When I accepted Christ as my personal Savior, God looked at me and saw me clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and now my standing before God is changed. He doesn't see me as a sinner. Rather, he sees the righteousness of Christ because I'm in Christ. Or Christ's righteousness, if you want to put a picture another way, of his robe is put upon me. And my standing before God, and this is settled, by the way. This is a done deal. This isn't something I have to worry about and wish. The scripture says, Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? If you have, your standing is settled. Salvation brings a change in our position before God because, and this is a key phrase or key word, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. I'm no longer standing in my sin. I'm standing in Christ. And my standing for God has changed because now he sees the righteousness of Christ. Not Ken Davies, the sinner. Secondly, salvation brings a change in our purpose before men. This is, we are to live Christ. The penalty of sin has been paid for. The power of sin has been broken. Now, as I live before men, my purpose has changed because I am to live Christ. We call this our state. See, my standing before God is settled. It's a done deal. But how do I live out this faith on earth. You know when Jesus was in John chapter 17, we, have, we talk about the prayer in the garden. And I'm going to bring this up later if I remember, but, but in case I don't, I begin forgetful as I get older. But anyway, as he was in the garden, he was praying for his disciples. Prayed, he said, I'm not, they are in the world, but they're not of the world. And I'm not praying to take them out of the world, I'm praying that they sanctify themselves by the word because your word is by truth because your word is the truth. This is very, this is very important. What did, what did he not pray for? He didn't pray for their happiness. What did he pray for? He prayed for their holiness as they lived out their salvation in this world. And that's what Paul is after here in verse 12. This is, you're to live, you're to live Christ. My standing for God is settled, it's fixed. But I'm to live Christ. The power of sin has been broken. 
And Paul says, this is, this is the emphasis in verse 12. This, this reformation, this change. I'm to live Christ. And the question is, are you living Christ? Or are you trying to get as close to sin as you possibly can? See, the power of sin's been broken. Distance yourself to live in Christ. This is one of the things I like about the Word of God. It's balanced. Did you notice it says, he says, teaching us that denying ungodliness, we are to live. What we're not supposed to do and what we're supposed to do. The word teaching there is we get our English word pedagogy, which means teacher. Pedagogy is teaching. He said, grace not only saves, but it teaches us. It's, it, teaching here is a process. It includes to educate, to train, to instruct, to discipline, to encourage, to re- correct, to repeat, to reinforce. See, the wise teacher, and that's what grace is, That's what Paul's seeking to communicate. The wise teacher, the grace of God in this case, will lead the student step by step to greater understanding of the subject at hand. Paul is going to try to take us step by step to the subject at hand because grace changes us. It transforms us and rather conforms us to God, to grace, God's riches at Christ's strength, to live, to live Christ. Verse 12, to live Christ. Which brings us to the next two words I want to emphasize here before we get into the negative and positive. The word deny and the word live. The word deny means to reject, renounce. Remember when Christ, at the, at the Last Supper, told Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster will crow. Peter said, nah, I'll never deny you. Well, after they arrested Jesus, he followed them at a distance, and, and when they had him at trial, he was gathering around with other people there around a fire. Apparently it was cold that evening. But he was in such a position that he could visually see Christ. And a servant girl at the fire came and looked at him and said, Aren't you one of those Galileans? Aren't you a follower of Christ? And he said, No, you are mistaken. When he was approached again, he finally said these words, I never knew him. The idea of deny here is to have no relationship with them. When he says, teaching us that denying, we we are not to have any relationship with ungodliness and worldly lust. We're to be as far as possible from them. We are not friends. We are not in the same hand clasp, in the same pocket. We're to be as distanced as far as possible. The power of sin has been broken. We are to distance ourselves, to deny should live. 
That's the positive. You have the negative deny, but you have the positive. When, remember when we, and I've brought this up before, we confess sin, forsake sin, and then change or replace. It's one thing for me to leave and walk away from something. But what am I replacing it with? Because if you don't replace it, the draw is going to be to go back. So I confess, I forsake, I leave it, and I replace it. Deny should live. Deny ungodliness should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Deny should live. Be proactive. Be, this is personal. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 says, and that, in fact, if you remember Colossians and Ephesians and even some places in Philippians, you have the challenge to put off, put off, which is like taking taking your, your coat off and throwing it aside and to put on. You're to put off and you're to put on. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 says, and that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is, this, I think this is important, and, and maybe you already know this. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to believers. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he's writing to the believers at Philippi. When Paul writes to the church of Colossae, he's writing to the believers at Colossae. When Paul is writing to Titus, he's writing to a fellow minister. The point I'm making is this. Even if and when you are in Christ, you're still going to have the draw and the challenge of being as far away from sin as possible. This is not some pie in the sky making up theoretical. This is real life. To distance yourself. And this challenge he's given, this is, listen, this is where we live. You say, oh, pastor, you, you certainly don't face temptation. Oh, just as much as you do. Maybe sometimes and more intensely. We are always, all our life long, are going to face trials and temptation. It'll never leave you. But, this is how you should live. Deny should live. The negative instruction. The NIV puts it this way. It teaches us to to say no. Just say no. This is what it teaches us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. I want to see a couple things there. I'm not going to read the whole section. I'm just going to point out a couple verses there in Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And then he launches into an explanation. What is ungodliness? Anything that is not God-like. Anything that is not holy, righteous, or pure. Anything that is contrary to the nature of God. Anything that dominates our life to replace God. 
But as you read down through Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the discussion of godliness, go down to verse 22. Let me tell you what you're, what I'm gonna, where I'm going with this, and then we'll read the scripture. On godliness, there are several things listed here, but it comes down to primarily two things. On godliness is idolatry and immorality. Look at verse 22 for idolatry through... I'm sorry, 21 through 23. 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. The worship of creaturely things rather than the creator of all things. Did you hear that? The worship of creaturely things, which would include our passions, our possessions, people, pleasure, our our property, places that we may go. All those things can become idols. They can replace our worship and our focus from God to these things. It is no different than the primitive tribesman on the backside of the mountain who takes a stick or a bar of soap and carves an image that he bows down and worships. It's no different. Oh, pastor, I'm not like that. Yes, you are. If you've taken something and replaced the worship and focus upon God, you have an idol. And when he says, deny ungodliness, beware of idolatry. Of those things that replace God. I I don't know what they are. I know the things that I struggle with. But the Spirit of God will reveal to you the idols that you have that are taking the place of God in your life and you're focusing upon it. In fact, you, you probably have done this. You've got this idol and you have it inside of a tube. But the rest of your life, to observation of everybody else, you live Christ. But you know you've got this one area that God cannot touch. That's your idol. What is it? He has all of you, or he has none of you. You go as far away as possible. Deny ungodliness. The second thing is immorality. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This is sexual pervert. If you read further, it's sexual perversion or sexual intoxication. There's if you as you study the scriptures, for instance, you go back to the Old Testament and look at the history of Israel, you will see there's always a very small step from their being involved in idolatry over into immorality. When you have an idol in your heart that becomes your focus and replaces your worship of God and takes the place of God, it opens the door to immorality, sexual perversion or sexual intoxication as specifically as is laid out in the scripture here. To the point was that immorality becomes your idol. He says, deny ungodliness. 
And secondly, he says, deny worldly lusts. World's system of evil, worldly lusts. There's two, there's two times that, as you look at Titus there, let me get back to it. Verse 12. Teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. There's actually two words that are often translated world. Worldly lust and present age. Both of them, actually two different words, but in this context, they refer to, to the same thing. World system of evil. Promoted by Satan, his ideals, his aims, his character. In, when we were doing, um, I never thought I'd see the day when Christians wouldn't know they were in a battle or in a war. David Jeremiah said, what is the primary characteristic of Satan? He's a liar. Worldly lust, the world system of evil, dominated by Satan. This is, he's the prince and power of the air. This is his realm, and he's a liar. Every time, think of it this way. Every time you tell a lie, you are like the devil. You are promoting his untruth. This world system. Anything and everything that is opposed to God. Satan's the head. The demons are his emissaries. The unsaved are his servants. The goal of this world system, who is dominated and, and led by Satan, is still to dethrone God and dominate man. Worldly lusts are there to try to take over and dominate our lives and put us back under that power of sin. Deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Keep in mind, let's, you know, let me take a time out here just to pause a minute. Keep in mind that Satan's three lines of attack are this. First of all, he tries to keep you from becoming a Christian. That's his first line. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as a personal Savior, the devil doesn't want you to get saved. That's his first line of attack. He does not want you to get saved. Second line of attack. All right, he was unsuccessful. You did get saved. You're here this morning and you do know Christ your personal Savior. He tries to keep you from actively serving useful in your Christian life. He doesn't want you to serve. He wants you just to sit, observe, watch, take in. But he doesn't want you to serve, especially to share. And then, if he can't stop you from that, his third line of attack is simply this. He'll try to blacken your character. If he can't stop you, then he will flatter you. He will spread rumors about you. He will do anything he can to try to blacken your character, even to the point where you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Worldly system of evil, worldly lust. The word lust is passionate, all-consuming desire, promoted by satanic world system. First John there, chapter 2, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. To look when we should turn away. To take more when we should give more. To be selfish and vicious 
when we should seek to be generous and kind, to be sensual and immoral when we should be disciplined and pure, to seek the recognition of man when we should be looking for the approval of God, deny ungodliness and worldly lust. That's the negative. What's the positive? He says, first of all, he says, live soberly. This is a relationship to self. This is where we, we, you would come, you draw a circle, you step in the circle, okay, God, I need you to help me, through the Spirit of God, evaluate myself. What's, what, where am I really at? What am I really like? What does my testimony really say? What am I really communicating in my life? Live soberly. It is the idea of self-control or self-discipline. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, we have the fruit of the Spirit. What's the last thing listed in the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. What's probably the one that we may struggle with more than anything else in our lives? Self-control. To live soberly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Paul is, he's challenging these believers at Corinth. He gives this scenario. He says, now everyone who competes for the prize is temperate, self-controlled in all things. And then he goes on and he says, you know, when you fight, you don't beat the air, you don't shadow box. When you run in a race, you run to win, don't you? He said, and this is the picture, this is what I always picture. Someone has broken into your house. Your life, not just your possessions, your life and your family is being attacked. You're in danger. All you have at your hand is a baseball bat. Will you take that back and just wish around and swish around and swing any place? No, you will take it and try to beat that intruder. You don't want to beat the air. And that's what Paul, and then in conclusion he says in verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. What's he saying? I have found out that the enemy is me. I'm the enemy. You know, we look out here and says, boy, if that, you know, that person, if they'd stay away from me and that, that thing over there, you know, I just can't not do that. And what's the problem? It's not those things. The problem is here. Live soberly to exercise that self-discipline. It is never giving in to excess. It is exercising self-control in everything. It is everything worldly lust is not. It is being filled with the Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 5.14, which means to be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. It is walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh, Galatians 5.16. It's personal. It's, it's proactive. This is a good illustration of, of self-control. We probably can all identify with. The strength to break a frozen chocolate bar into four pieces and the self-control to only eat one piece. Isn't that true? You ever eat just one piece of chocolate? That's self-control. Try it today. Live soberly. Live righteously. This has to to do 
with our relationship with others, specifically. To live righteously. We're already clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and so what he's saying is, let's take that righteousness where our standing, our position, let's live it out. Let's live out that righteousness. Let's demonstrate it. Our walk talks and our talk talks, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. Let's demonstrate it. Live righteously. Fairness, integrity, truthfulness. To ask the question, how would I want to be treated? To keep our word. To remember you reap what you sow. Or, put it another way, nice gets nice. Micah 6.8 says, speaking of relationship to others, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Live soberly. Live righteously. And lastly, he says, live godly. Piety, purity, holiness. To love what God loves and hate what God hates. When I, oftentimes when I pray, and I would challenge you to do this when you pray, God, help me to love what you love and hate what you hate. God, give me your mind. God, keep that hedge of protection of holiness around me. Lord, sanctify me through your truth, knowing that your word is truth. To think God's thoughts after him, to submit to the word in order to be in his will, to live godly. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Our relationship with God. But as he who has called you is holy, again, Peter's writing to believers, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Holy. Live godly. Deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live, what? Soberly, righteously, and godly. Grace breaks, pays for the penalty of sin, but it breaks the power of sin. And it teaches us, it teaches us how we should live. The question is, how are you living? Have you distanced yourself? Are you trying to get as close as you can and you continue to have that struggle? And you continue to have that struggle. And you continue to have that struggle. When Paul, as he challenges us here in another passage of Scripture, live soberly, live righteously, and live godly. And you say, Pastor Ken, I can't do it. You know what the good news is? You're normal. The bad news is, this is going to be a continual battle all your life. Good news, we have the power of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to continue on a daily basis overcome sin. And that's what we can rest in. Or that's what we can take the bank. Or that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's the way it is. You need to take it personal, and you need to be proactive. Nobody can do this for you.
And we have the power through the Spirit of God to, to overcome on a daily basis. So take the challenge. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Next week we'll look at verse 13. Grace brings rewards. We look ahead. Father, we pray, Lord, as we come to you and as we close the service in prayer, we thank you for the power of your word and the truth of it. Indeed, Lord, I pray that we may continue to not only worship you and focus upon you and, and remove those idols of the heart to stay as far away from ungodliness and worldly lust as possible through the power and ministry of grace and power and ministry of the Spirit of God himself. If you're here this morning, with eyes closed, head bowed, so I don't want anybody looking around. This is, this is not, I will not embarrass you or not call attention to you, but if you're indeed are here this morning and you don't know if you're saved or you know for sure you've never put your faith in Christ, but you'd like to have someone show you from the scriptures how to be saved, you just quickly raise your hand, put it down. I will come to you or see you after the service. If it's a man, we'll have someone show you from the scriptures how to be saved. If it's a lady, we'll have a lady show you how to be saved from the scriptures, from the word of God. Is there anyone like that? Secondly, you say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me. I want to get as far away from sin as possible to experience the power of God in my life. Is there anyone like that? Any others? Father, we thank you. And Lord, we know you know hearts. And indeed, Lord, there may be someone here who doesn't know Christ. We pray that as we sought here to plant seeds, that you, Lord, are going to have to bring the fruit from it. And Lord, we pray for all of us as we seek to live for you, live soberly and righteously and godly, that through the Spirit of God, you will enable us to exercise that self-control that truthfulness and honesty and integrity, and to love, Lord, what you love and hate what you hate. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.